thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an honor to bring the Word of God to the saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church this morning. Uh, my, uh, my one and only son is now 18 months old and it's crazy how fast he's growing and learning about new things, uh, and, uh, really just having one shot at it with over the last 18 months. I think it's safe to say that I am now something of a parenting expert. Uh, I I got it all figured out, right? I got a little bit of a bigger laugh than I expected. <laughs> I don't know what y'all are talking about. Uh, no, every day there is something throwing me for a loop. Uh, there, there, there's plenty of growth to be had by all parties involved, him and myself included. Uh, when I was younger, I, w- I would always hear from older brothers in the faith that becoming a dad will change the depth in which I see and understand the actions of God the Father. And I always thought that that was kind of nonsense because I already knew it all, right? What what could doing something else increase my knowledge? But now being in that position, I I see what they were talking about. Loving my son has helped me understand the love of the Father. Giving gifts to my son has helped me understand the blessings of the father. Even disciplining my son has helped me understand the discipline of the father. Now, just as a quick side note this morning, not everyone is called to be a father. That doesn't make you any less valuable. It doesn't make you any less understanding of the Lord. But God does use our unique positions, our unique perspectives to draw us together so that we can support one another and teach one another from our perspectives. Please don't tune out on me right here if you're not a dad. But as a dad with a rambunctious toddler, as he was just playing patty cake right there, I've had to start applying discipline in his life. Why do I do it? Because I love him. Because I want him to be safe and to grow in a healthy home. Because it would not be loving to let him hurt himself or to hurt other people without consequence. We need to have a firm grasp on this truth that I'm getting at here. Because in our primary text this morning... We're going to see God given instruction. That instruction is going to be ignored and consequences are going to follow. In our culture, we have pacified our view of God's character in a way that denies his holy nature. Church, we need to understand that disciplining, that the disciplining God of justice is not opposed to the blessing God of love. They are one and the same. God is love and God is just. And it is for our good that he is both. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. I have it on the screen for you. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
For, the, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In this section of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is reminding the readers that following the Lord is costly. There is a, a cost to following the Lord. It's not always comfortable. And that's something that we have missed in our American church context. Following the Lord is not always comfortable. Being a God-honoring church member is not always comfortable. Paul writes multiple times in, throughout the Gospels, throughout the epistles, excuse me, he, he strains, he agonizes, he fights to serve the Lord. Following the Lord faithfully is directly against our own sin nature and the flesh we still walk in. So it is a grace that we can come together and sit under the right handling of the word. It is a grace that we can build one another up in our groups and in our classes. And it is a grace that God the Father disciplines his children. In fact, in this section of Hebrews, we see that the being disciplined by the Father is proof we are his children. God is working everything together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even the uncomfortable chastisements and the reproofs. I say all this because sometimes we think that being an all-loving God means that our God is some kind of weathered and kind grandpa smiling on the rocker of the front porch while the children roughhouse in the yard and get into all sorts of trouble. That's not the case. Our God, God the Father, is the active, protective, loving, and disciplining Father who lays down boundaries that are beneficial for His children and He strikes the rod when it is what is needed and beneficial for His children. He is also the loving Father who protects His children from danger by fending off the attacker. We understand it as an honorable thing for a man to protect his home when the intruder comes seeking to do harm to his children. How much more honorable is it then for God the Father to cast out and punish the wicked? I want to explore the idea of God's strength this morning. Because understanding who God is only by the upbeat songs that come on the radio, we're likely to only see a God that showers down on unfettering blessings. And don't get me wrong, we have a God who blesses beyond all measure, beyond what we could ever comprehend. But if we only focus on a, on a God who coddles our desires, then two things happen. Number one, we don't have a true grasp on the true God of the true Bible. And number two, when we come in contact with the true God of the true Bible, we cringe. When we get to a story like where we're going to be at today, we're sometimes, ooh, that ain't my God. They didn't say that on Caleb. When we read the stories of judgment in the Old Testament, we're like, nah, my God can't be like that. We need to understand God is not mean. He is just. He is not vindictive. He is disciplining. In a culture of tolerance, we need to understand that God is intolerant of sin. 
having this understanding will allow us to better understand the story that we read today. And instead of being confused by God's seemingly stern actions, we can learn to praise him for his justice. With that in mind, if you haven't already, open up 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're entering the final chapter here uh, of this stint of 1 Samuel that we've been walking through for a, a little while here. And for the past 10 weeks, we've seen how Israel desired a king so that they could look like the rest of the nations around them. Their desire for king was a really a rejection of God as their king. And despite their rejection, God gives them a king. He gives them Saul. Saul was the poster child of what a king in the world should look like. Uh, he was big. He was an imposing man, a head above everybody else. He didn't have battle experience, but he had the frame of a warrior when you were to look at him. But as Saul becomes king, we've seen that it was not his desire to serve the Lord, to honor the Lord in the position. He was self-serving. He served himself. He tried to craft situations for his own benefit, for his own advantage. And because of this, God tells Saul through the prophet Samuel that he's going to be removed from that position. He's not going to be the king any longer. And from that point, we've seen a struggle uh, between the Philistines and between the Israelites where John's son, I'm sorry, Saul's son, Jonathan, shows a, a stronger faith than his father And though Israel has a victory over the Philistines, is what we looked at recently, Saul's treatment of the people dampens the victory from what it could have been. That leads us to where we're picking up this morning, chapter 15. The first three verses in chapter 15 set up a specific command for Saul. And we're going to start in verse 2 this morning. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to the Israel, did to Israelite and opposing is, did to Israel, excuse me, in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go stri- strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Right off the bat, we're confronted with something that I alluded to in our introduction. Your first thought, if you just read this verse on your own, you might think, whoa, 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 Pastor Brad. That is not the all-loving God on my radio station. My all-loving God would not tell Saul not to spare a single person. Not to spare anything from the Amalekites. But remember, God is love and God is just. Expressions of God's holy justice against an unholy creature is not a violation of his love. By mentioning the history of the Amalekites with Israel, God is saying, now in my perfect timing, it is time to settle up the accounts. The sins in the history of the Amalekites are now to be dealt with. It's a callback to what we see in the Exodus account. We don't have to turn there now, but I'll give you a couple of references. The Lord told Moses in Exodus 17, 14, that God was going to blot out the memory of, the, uh, of Amalek from Egypt. Or, I'm sorry, from everywhere under heaven. Why? Because uh, they were one of the first tribes to attack Israel as they left Egypt. While Israel was weak, while Israel was worn out and weary, the Amalekites attacked the stragglers of the Israelites. That likely means they were attacking the women and the children as they were on their way out from Egypt. The Amalekites did not fear the one true God of Israel. We also read there that back in Exodus. They had no reverence of the Lord of hosts. 
It was recorded throughout multiple places in the Old Testament that in his perfect timing, God was going to wipe them out. So, while the modern reader of this section of scripture looks at this and might be shocked, that's only because we're unacquainted with the history surrounding this event. Because we didn't read Exodus or we didn't remember it when we got to this section. We're inclined also to diminish the seriousness of their sin. In fact, there are some out there that will argue that the God of the Old Testament is a completely different God from the New Testament. The angry, misery, old God of the Old Testament with his grudges and his wrath is incompatible with the loving God of the New Testament. Well, first of all, I'll just say as an apologetic that that is a a cherry pick of the New Testament to come to that conclusion. Uh, but our, our Lord Jesus was not afraid to speak with, uh, of the wrath in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a quote from Jesus. Furthermore, we are seeing here in the Old Testament account that this is an example of truth nestled in the heart of the New Testament. Look at Galatians chapter 6. We'll have it on the screen. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The God of the New Testament who is also the God of the Old Testament, will not be mocked. There are repercussions to actions, even in New Testament theology. Whatever anyone sows is what he will reap. The Amalekites were a a people not just apathetic to God, not just ignoring him, but adversarial. Their fate had been proclaimed hundreds of years before we find ourselves in our text today. This brings up a, a couple of interesting points of practical application for our understanding. Number one, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 through 3, God is referred to as the Lord of hosts. We see him working through one nation to bring judgment on another nation. We should be reminded that in times of international conflict, God is still in control and is still working things together according to his plan and his perfect purpose. I've I've mentioned it before But one of my recent memory verses is Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, in which Jesus is referred to as the ruler of kings on earth. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, I can't tell you what's going to happen in the next election. I can't tell you what the geopolitical landscape is going to look like 50 years from now. But I can tell you. Even if the scene looks as dark as it could from our perspective, God is in control and Jesus will still be and is today ruler of kings on earth. Number two, we should not be surprised to see calamity strike a people where there is no fear of the Lord. We should not be surprised when judgment is handed down on people that do not fear the Lord. They did not revere the one true God, the, 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 the Lord of hosts, as we're reading here. And consequences were to come. God will not be mocked. Even within our own tribe, in our own country, if God is not feared, we should not be surprised if even national judgment were to follow. But even if times of great national darkness were to come, there is hope for those who know the Lord because we can hold tight to his goodness and know that even that is being used for our good and his glory. The third practical application here. 
So we got to be familiar with the whole scope of the word. If we want to have a grasp at all on the whole scope of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that our little human minds here are going to be capable of understanding an infinite God. But we can use that which he has given us to better know and to better understand him. And as we better understand him, we appreciate him for who he is. We'll see how King Saul uh, uh, responds to God's request here in just a moment. But if Saul had a deep familiarity with the word, he would have known what an honor it was for God to ask him to do this thing that had been prophesied 100 years ago or been promised hundreds of years before. It would have been an honor that God allowed him to lead the attack there in our lives. If we are having a deep understanding of the word, we will see that God has given those who believe in him the great honor of being his ambassador. We'd see the seriousness of this uh, of the state of the world that we're living in. We'd hold on to the hope that we walk through uh, the valley of the shadow of death. We'd still have hope in that moment. We must be committed to learning and growing in our faith because it's for his glory and our good. And as we dive into the word, as we have a deep understanding of the rest of scripture, we will see how God is working these things together for his good. One biblical scholar suggests that we stop making New Year's resolutions and start making New Day resolutions to be serious and overjoyed about the word of God. Today and every day is the day to begin being serious about God's word. You start today. You don't have to uh, pull out one of the the, the great uh, read through the Bible in 90 days. You can start with a verse, but be serious about learning the word of God, about being in the word of God. God's word is so good. And for us to understand him, we got to use what he has given us to do so. After Saul was given command uh, to take out the Amalekites, let's see how he responds. He first gathers together a large group of men to lead them into battle. He goes down into the valley to wait for the Amalekites. While there, you'll notice that he he warned a people group called the Kenites to leave uh, from the presence of the Amalekites so that they wouldn't be harmed in this battle. Uh, This is just kind of a side note as we're jumping on to the next section that we'll be in in a moment. But this was a good decision by Saul. The Kenites had not been adversaries of Israel. Moses' father-in-law had been a Kenite. Uh, there, there was a kindness between the Israelites and between the Kenites. And so it was good to warn them so that they wouldn't be part of this battle that was about to go down. Uh, and so the Kenites listened to the warning and then they leave the area. Then in verse 7, Saul makes his attack and we get the impression everything goes pretty well with the attack. Uh, and it says the Amalekites were defeated. This is a kind of a, a so far so good statement in the story. But we have to note that being defeated is different than being destroyed. Being defeated in the battle doesn't mean the war was over. Saul was commanded to end the war completely. So let's see what happens in verse 8 and 9. So Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. And Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And all that and all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. In these verses, we see that Saul was partially obedient to the Lord, what the Lord had told him to do. Saul took down the Amalekites in that area. But we know he didn't carry out the full command, which was, being, uh, which was to completely take out the entire tribe, all the people, even their belongings, even their cattle. 
We know that Saul didn't obey this because of a few reasons. Uh, Two reasons in the specific text and other biblical history also given later. In just this verse, in this section of verses, we see that Saul kept King Agag alive, right? And then he also kept the best of the cattle, uh, uh, um, even though he was told not to do that. This is going directly against God's command for Saul. He said, take it all out. And we see two evidences right there that he didn't do that. We also see later on in biblical history uh, that Saul must not have wiped out every single one of the Amalekites at this time because just a few decades later, we're talking just a 30-ish years from this point, King David would be bothered by a whole band of, uh, of uh, Amalekites there. Uh, you can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Also, hundreds of years after this fact, in the book of Esther, you read about a descendant of Agag named Haman. Now, if you know anything, Haman, excuse me. And Haman tries to wipe out the entire Jewish population. Every every Jew in the book of Esther is, is devoted to destruction. Well, that's Haman's plan, at least. So we clearly see in just this verse and the rest of biblical history, Saul was not completely obedient to the task that he was given. In church, we need to know partial obedience is complete disobedience. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. This morning we had the Lord's Supper and it was an honor for me to prepare the bread this time. I know it was a little bit different, but... It might not have been the tastiest stuff ever made, but there's an interesting illustration in the unleavened bread used for the Lord's Supper. The original Lord's Supper was done at Passover time, and in traditional Passover meal, the bread was unleavened. For the symbology of the meal, the leaven represents sin. Any bit of leaven, any yeast, any sourdough starter that were to, uh, uh, was to be removed from even the whole home during that time. It's the idea that even a little bit of leaven uh, leavens the lump, right? Even just a little bit in there uh, gets through. So in the Passover meal, it is representing a little bit of sin uh, stains the whole of a person and then it spreads and festers and grows. I've been making a lot of sourdough bread these days just for fun at home. And it is incredible how just a little amount of starter creates a fermented dough. And this whole thing just grows and grows and grows. Now let's connect that back to our text this morning. God's calling to completely wipe out the Amalekites is a vivid picture of what it looks like when we allow sin to fester in our lives. Saul was supposed to take them all out, but he didn't. Years later, they attacked David. More years down the road, they tried to get rid of all the Jewish people in all of the world. When we look at this through the lens of the New Testament, we can see this as an example of what happens when we allow something to stick around in our lives that God has called us to kill. Our sin. God's word tells us to mortify our sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why do we do that? Well, Christ has assured all those who believe in him of eternal life. But until we get there, the sin that remains in our lives hinders our joy and flattens our mission. Church, we are not called to half-heartedly eliminate sin in our lives. We are called to wholeheartedly mortify it, to destroy it. 
That is an agonizing, a striving, strenuous process. One that requires constant reminder and encouragement. Praise be to God that he designed the church to do just that. For us to come together and talk about how we are putting to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. To be reminded of the worthiness of Christ to be served. And that though we still battle with this flesh, we are inspired to press on for the victory that he has attained for us. That's why we come together. Because we're brothers and sisters in arms. Encouraging one another. Spurring one another on in love and good works. Understanding that Christ assured the victory and he's given us a battle to fight right now. May we be committed this morning to leave no enemy of sin left standing. But to do so, we gotta be on guard. We have to have our eyes open. One pastor noted that a particular sin may leave the believer alone for a while to make him think that he's rid of it. But it can come back uh, with a hellish fury if he's not on guard. Sin perpetually stalks him. He must continually be mortifying it. This is a duty he cannot rest from until he rests in glory. Give sin an inch, it'll take a mile. That's certainly true. I'll also add, this is not a novel idea that we're talking about this morning or preaching from this pulpit or something that you've probably heard in the past. Why then do we not mortify the sin that is in us? If we've heard Pastor Brad preach through Colossians and talk about put to death, therefore, if we've listened to this and heard preacher and read the word and heard this time over and over again, why do we have to have this constant reminder? Why don't we just do it? Well, it's likely the same reasons that Saul didn't completely wipe out the Amalekites and their belongings. I'll present three quick reasons. Number one, Reasons why we don't mortify our sin. We don't see the seriousness of allowing it to stay. Saul, in his humanness, didn't have the foresight to see what would happen if he let some of the Amalekites live. He thought, oh, this victory is pretty good, right? There was, there was a big victory that happened. He didn't think that any remaining contingent would be crafty enough to try to scheme against Israel in the future. We too often think that things are less of a big deal than they really are. Just look back at the, 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 the moral and sexual revolution happening around us in our modern culture and see how a little bit of leaven rises the lump. Number two, our pride gets the best of us. Saul wanted to keep King Agag alive because that was a way for kings at that time to flaunt their victory. This was a fairly common practice between fighting tribes. You would show off the emasculated king before another tribe and showing your superiority of your own tribe. Hey, look at this. We won kind of thing. We love visible moments of our own success, probably as much as Saul did. How does this play out in our lives? Well, it can be in a variety of different ways. But maybe when you came to faith in God, you... We're convicted of some of the business dealings that you had going on that weren't quite so above board and ethical lines have been blurred in the past. And so now that you know Jesus, you know that your work is not working for serving men, but for the Lord. And so you clean up your business. But then an opportunity comes in to cut a corner. It's too good. It's too lucrative. It'd be too nice to have that extra thing. So you cross the line and somebody was taken advantage of. They might not even be, they might be none the wiser. 
But even still, the Lord is not honored when our pride and self-promotion leads us into sin. It becomes easier to cross the line next time. Listen, any sin that we commit, even well after knowing Christ as Lord, any sin, all sin has been paid for on the cross. But when we disobey for our own personal pride, for our own gain, we give no honor to the Lord. And that is a sad affair. It's a sad affair. The third reason we allow sin to stick around in our life is that in our flesh, if we're being real honest, we want to be vulnerable this morning. We'll just get real. Sin still looks good. Saul looked at the cattle that the Lord told him to destroy, and he said, it's too good to get rid of. One of the biggest lies told and bought in this world is that if it makes you happy, it's good for you. So many marriages are broken because someone looked outside their marriage and saw someone that they deemed better than what they already had. Church, our hearts are deceitful. In our flesh, on this side of glory, there are going to be things that look very good to us that we got no business being involved with. God has already told Saul, don't mess with that stuff. Wipe it out. But Saul got so close and he was right there. He said, man, that looks too good. I'm just going to keep it. It's no big deal. Sometimes sin still looks good, even though it ain't. So what happens to Saul? What was the response to his disobedience? Well, we're going to get into this more deeply next week. But for now, look at the next two verses. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, this is a very interesting passage, and we're actually going to get into what the idea means when the Lord says, I regret that I made Saul king next week. We'll go into that in deeper detail then. So I'm not looking past that. I don't want to act like I'm ignoring that, but for just circle it. And we'll come back to it, okay? We're coming back to that next week. The overarching idea I want us to grab from these two verses, though, is the overwhelming sense of mourning, despair, and frustration in the wake of sin. That is where all sin leads. Samuel in verse 11 is distraught. He's angry. We don't know if he's angry at Saul. We don't know if he's angry at the situation. We don't know anywhere in between. We just know he's crying out to the Lord all night. There's something excellent that we can learn from that. If you see the seriousness of your sin, the great brokenness with which your sin has made your life. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. Go ahead and throw that up, brother. When we see the brokenness that sin has made in our lives, the brokenness there is within us and around us, Take hope, because though Saul was a faltering king, there was a better king coming. 
Christ the King was coming for those who realize they're stuck in brokenness and they see the frustration of their sin and look for any way out, never finding it. Take hope because Christ the King stepped out of heaven so that all who believe in him would be restored to the perfect God from whom their sin separated. The King Christ is said in Scripture to be the one to whom God has appointed judge over all the living and the damned. And he will take sin so seriously. We will see justice like what we've seen in the text today. But though he may take sin so seriously, for all who believe in him made evident through turning from sin, turning to him, being uh, confessing him as Lord to those who believe in him, though sin may be truly dealt with, he dealt with it for you. To those who believe in him, he shall have eternal life reconciled to the Father from whom our sin separates. Instead of wrath, you receive grace. That can be you. And it does not depend on your goodness. You aren't the king who stepped out of heaven and you'll never be the king who stepped out of heaven. But we're saved when we see the king for who he is. The one who stepped out for us. He's given us the God-given desire to honor him in our lives. I talked today about mortifying sin, putting to death what is earthly in us. We don't do that to earn our righteousness, but because Christ has saved us. Do you understand Christ is king? That he lived, died, and rose again to do what you could not do. If you do, live in response to that. And if you're coming to that understanding for the first time today, we're called to make that known before others. We give you this hymn of response as a time to do that, to say, Christ is king. My sin holds me, has a grip on my life, but he defeats and breaks the chains that are on me. Cry out to Christ. See the frustration of sin, and just like Samuel, Cry to the Lord. What must I do to be saved, O Lord? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come before you today to share your word. Lord, I pray that it would make an impression on our hearts, that we would see the worthiness of Christ to be served, that those who have known you for some time would be refreshed in their zeal to show you, Lord, that they would mortify what is left of their sin, Lord, that we would actively be seeking to honor you in every aspect of our lives. That we wouldn't allow sin to fester and grow. Lord, I also pray that if anybody is coming to see the brokenness of their sin for the first time today, seeing it in light of the holy God that you are, that they would be drawn to make public profession to say Christ is king. That they would do so today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org.
Have a wonderful day and God bless.